Welcome to The Breadwinners, the podcast about the never-ending hustle and its impact on all aspects of our lives. We're interested in what it takes to keep everything going. This podcast is about women, working, money, and family. We consider the research, talk to experts, and share our takes on what we're learning every day about breadwinning. I'm Jennifer Owens. I write about working, wellness, and women, and founded the Working Mother Research Institute. And most days, I'm joined by my co-host, Raquel Ellison. Today, we're back for a special series, talking to guests about the challenges facing the sandwich generation, meaning those of us juggling kids, parents, and careers, all at the same time. Dr. Marianne Cooper, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. Thanks. It's good to be here. So you are a senior research scholar at VMware Women's Leadership Innovation Lab at Stanford University, and you study all the things we love to talk about at the Breadwinners, women's leadership, diversity, inclusion, the future of work. But our big, big love for you is for your Women in the Workplace reports with Lean In and McKinsey. I mean, literally, I print them out, I circle things, I think about things, and I just thank you. I love them to pieces. Oh, well, I'm glad you, you read it. I, I It goes out into the world and um, I do get the sense that people read it and print it out. And, and so it's nice to know it's having an impact. It is. <laughs> well, so in your most recent one, you note that women are the ones holding our workplaces together mm-hmm. during the pandemic. And so I'd love to start there. So mm-hmm. what do you mean by that? Yeah, well, it, it, this idea kind of popped into my head during last year's Women in the Workplace report where, you know, this was uh, in the few, first few months after the pandemic began and we did some interviews and I was hearing in those interviews, women in, in managerial roles doing a lot of stuff to support their teams. So mm. setting up like more frequent communication, not just talking with their their reports, but their skip level reports. And yeah, it popped into my head because one woman I interviewed was like, I don't really even know if my boss can see me doing this. And I just had this like lightning bolt kind of idea of like, oh my God, this is going to be the new office housework. This stuff to support employees, check in on them, help them manage their work life stuff. With all the stuff going on in a global health emergency, there's more of it to do. And that kind of work is often associated with women because it kind of falls into sort of a nurturing, supporting like characteristics that we more readily associate with women. Mm-hmm. So I just was, that kind of planted the seed. And then we've explored that in this year's report and, and we did find that. And, and layered on top of that is in, in addition to that kind of work, there's also the diversity, equity, and inclusion work that women leaders are also doing, which we can talk about. Well, but, so what is the office housework? Like what often gets looped into that kind of thinking? So the sort of conventional definition of office housework is like tasks and activities that need to get done for an organization, that the organization benefits from when those things are done, but they're they're not recognized, they're underappreciated, and, and they don't lead to advancement. That's sort of the, the standard definition of office housework. So if you read about it and if you Google it and read about it, what, what things come up are often like, you know, ordering lunch or you know, managing the interns or doing the retirement party is often what we might call like female typed tasks, culturally speaking. There's yeah. also other kinds of work that seems a little bit like more glamorous, you know, like serving on a DEI committee. But usually these things they aren't really valued in the organization. And so they go unrecognized and unrewarded. In academia, it's often referred to as service work. So again, serving on committees, advising students, supporting students, 
teaching, that kind of stuff. Again, teaching is more similar between men and women faculty, but that other kind of stuff, the mentoring and supporting of students tends to fall to women. I tell you that when back in my working mother dates, I led a committee to develop a flexible work policy. Mm -hmm. And it became the empathy part of it was 20 minutes of people complaining that they had no, you know, because flexible work usually ties into, you know, ruling by fear. Mm-hmm. You know, bosses, you know, they have to see you. They don't trust you. They, or the employees feel that they're not. All that sort of stuff would vent. And so mm-hmm. I became the keeper of those stories and the feelings of, you know, you know, how do you feel about that? That kind of thing. And then all the work that went into writing it, into presenting it. Oh, I got schooled on the best ways to communicate to our CEO. So mm-hmm. much work went into this thing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we created a policy. And then in the end, there was no accountability. So when there was one executive who ran the biggest division of the company and he didn't want to abide by it, then it all came back. I got the empathy side of it again when everyone said, what do we do about it? I don't know. But all of that, I was valuable. I was the face of flexible work at the time. So I did want to have a role in how the company rolled it out and, Mm -hmm. and viewed flexible work. But no, other than a hearty handshake, maybe, <laughs> or I was kind of seen as a problem child because sure. I was trying to change, you know, like, but none yeah. of that stuff. It's so funny to think of invisible work when it was so visible, but yeah, it wasn't, mm-hmm. I didn't mm-hmm. get judged. My bonus wasn't tied to it. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Of course not. I mean, you know, sociologically, the concept that really helps us unpack this is the term invisible work. And that was coined in the 1980s by a sociologist named Arlene Kaplan-Daniels, who, who has passed away now. But she did really interesting research on in, the invisible work women do, which, which she really defined as the unpaid work, like housework and volunteer work, that's really critical to the functioning of society. But it's, mm, you know, again, yeah. unpaid, and it's culturally and economically devalued. And so that invisible work shows up in paid labor, of course, right? It spills over into paid labor. And so women, the work that women are disproportionately doing in organizations and in companies tends to hold less value, even if it like in terms of, of reward and compensation, like the valuable work is work that's rewarded and recognized. If right. it's not rewarded and recognized, it fundamentally is not valued. People can say it. Is. They can applaud your efforts. They can pat you on the back and say, Thank you so much for spending the 20 hours this week on, you know, making sure the interns were all like, you know, on board well. and well. Yeah. But there's no, if it doesn't show up on your performance review, then it right. kind you of doesn't matter KPI, for you. Which had nothing to do with the interns. Right. 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 It, it's so, it's sort of like, it, uh, broadly, this type of work too can be called like bettering work, which is making organizations or other institutions better. Like, again, women are often tasked with it, they may even kind of gravitate towards it because it's meaningful work, Yeah, but it doesn't lead to advancement. And so at the individual, like the level of an individual woman, there's not much of a sort of payoff for her in terms of her career for doing it, even though the organization benefits from it. And and this is like a, a point of it that I think is, is less named, but we should be naming it is that this is actually exploitation. It's like, we can say it goes unrecognized and unrewarded, but when a company is benefiting off the, you know, unpaid work of women. And often it's women from traditionally marginal, marginalized groups in a context in which companies are mostly run by white men. This is what we would call exploitation. 
So it sort wow. of, which I like naming it. I like naming things as they actually are because I yeah. think it, it kind of says like this is this is a real problem and and needs to be addressed. Hmm. Well, now we're putting diversity work under this. Is this is coming getting sucked into this too? That that one made me gasp for a second. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know when you kind of stand back and think about all the pressures on companies and employees over the last 18 months. So obviously there's the pandemic, a global health emergency, but we also had, you know, a national reckoning on racism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd and a lot of conversations in workplaces and companies responding to this and saying, you know, we are like committing ourselves to, um, racial justice projects, you know, across the board, we're donating money, we've got to look at our own organization. What ends up happening, though, is because people of color are underrepresented in companies, um, when companies go out strongly on racial justice issues, you know, their messaging is far beyond the realities of their their own organizations. And so they have to then start to do the work and employees start to expect it because they've just made all these commitments. And so there was an effort, I think, to do more on the DEI front. And people, employees themselves were really almost called. I would call it like a calling to engage more. I think many people had their consciousness raised or or reawakened. It wasn't that these issues were new to them, but they felt that they wanted to engage with them more deeply. So a lot of stuff started happening in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. And all of that work, again, that is... You know, companies see this work as very critical. We ask that yeah. in the report. Both the work to support employee well-being, like managing workloads and checking in on folks and helping with work-life challenges, and this DEI work. The issue is then when we ask employees, like, is this work that you do formally recognized, like in a performance review? And only yeah. about a quarter of employees said that it was. Which is like, and then that, that's, the, that's yeah. the question and the fundamental disconnect is if companies think this work is really important, why aren't they recognizing it, rewarding it? And from a sociological standpoint, the way we would explain a disconnect like that is because it's work that women are doing more of. And women's work historically, culturally is devalued. Yeah, it's like, it's, um, isn't that some chicken in the egg? Like if, you, if the women do it, does it devalue it? You know, it's in the true, like, compensated way of valuing the work. Or would the work not get done if women don't do it and the work itself? It's just yes. that only women can do it. Right. Ooh. There's different threads to it. I mean, yeah. the, the fact that it's unrecognized and unrewarded effectively renders this work low status. Effectively. I don't think... I think in in company speak and in leader speak, they would never say that this is yeah. low status. But no, this is just you, between us. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's just when you actually look at it and yeah. there's this really big problem here, which is if you say, if you're a CEO and you say, you know, employee well-being is our number one priority. Totally and, important, and, right. And, and and we really want to improve our diversity, equity, inclusion in this company. And then you go and look at who's doing that work and it's women. And our data found that it, not only is it women, but it's much more likely, at least in the, on the DEI work, to be 
you know, women from traditionally marginalized. Black and brown women being, you know, saddled with not only explaining what's happening, but bringing in and also charged with making change in their company. Right. And and we found it was, you know, black women. While they lead the sales division. (laughs) Exactly. On top of everything else they're already doing. It's, you know, black women, LGBTQ plus women and women with disabilities. We're significantly more likely to be lead, leading those kinds of efforts. But so if a CEO says this is really important, but women and, you know, really women from traditionally marginalized groups are doing more of it, and then it's not really recognized or paid for. Yeah. Like all then, of that, to me, render, shows that this is low status work that actually is not valued by the company. Yeah. And so I think it would be, it's sort of incumbent on leaders and organizations to connect the dots here. Um, right. And decide, like, are we really committed or is this really just lip service and we're fine with this whole exploitation thing that's going on? And I think one of the, you know, it's bad news, of course, that this is happening for individual women managers and leaders who are not getting the credit for all of this work and are literally, they're all really burnt out, right? Like, yes. I mean, overwhelmed. Like, I was actually, I thought there was, you know, maybe a, a mistake in, when the data first started coming in because my jaw kind of dropped on like women who manage teams, like 50% of them are like always or almost always, you know, burned out. And like something like 40% are thinking about, you know, downshifting or leaving workforce altogether. I mean, these are high numbers. Yes. And, and just to be clear for if you haven't read the report for our listeners that you surveyed more than 400 companies and 650,000 employees in professional jobs all across the ladder, all yeah. up and down the ladder. So yeah. we're not talking like, oh, we just, which this is still a big company. You know, we just looked at this one huge company. We're talking <laughs> yeah. a broad yeah, range yeah. of responses. Yeah. I think the it's, burnout it's, is very it's 65,000. I think you said 600 and something. It's 65,000. 65,000. Oh, 65, yeah. Still. still, still I mean, all right. Well, then I totally discount everything because it's only 65,000. <laughs> no, it's still, it's still an enormous sample. I mean, yeah. that's why I, one of the reasons why I really love working on this is that as a sociologist who's studied and read other other work by my colleagues, it's like, it's so interesting to take these notions of invisible work and office housework and then get like a really big sample of people answering these questions. We just, you know, normally in academia, your sample size is just much smaller. And so we can really, really see what's happening in a way that a lot of other research just can't. Yeah. So it's cool. I mean, terrible, but cool. But it's cool to be able to be that sure of what you're seeing because you're, the numbers are so large and that yeah. the trends are not, yes, they're not small, I guess. No, they're not I've... small. And we also do interviews and I quite like, you know, we start getting the data back and we're seeing these trends and then you do the interviews and people speak about their own experience and it brings to life the numbers that you're seeing. Like I talked with one woman VP who, you know, was really doing a lot on the DEI front and she talked about how, you know, She's like, and to your point, she was in back-to-back Zoom calls all day. Their, the workload was, you know, crazy high. She's like, yeah, we have like um, well-being yoga or whatever it is, but I can't go because right. it's like, you know, I have too many meetings and, and work's too busy. Yes. She's like, so I'm doing all this DEI work on my weekends, on vacations, on, uh, late at night. And she's like, and there's just, it's frustrating. There's no reward or recognition. And so it's like, you know, it, the fundamentally the construction of this is that it's just like, it, like you know, it's like some kind of passion project or volunteer drive, which right. doesn't make sense given the commitments that companies have publicly stated. They should not be volunteer drives if these are core values and core goals of the company. Well, and so between us, <laughs> should we women say no thank you to these 
these things? I mean, it's so hard. And I'm totally a, you know, they used to say when we were in high school, you know, I was a Nancy Drew, like, I see it. I'm going to do it. And <laughs> like, you can't slow me down. I will fix the world. Yeah. Like, maybe we just like the women's strikes of the women's liberation movement. We just mm-hmm. walk away and just don't do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, as a tactic, withholding labor is is very forceful. <laughs> and that's, that's what strikes are all about. Yes. And it can make visible, you know, things that are often invisible and overlooked. I, I think there there is something to be said about that. I kind of struggled with because I've been asked this question since the report came out. And I think the issue is if we were talking about office housework, like taking notes during a meeting and like uh, the, the only woman yeah. on the team always being asked to do that, I'd be like, yeah, just say you can't do it anymore or like suggest that that gets rotated as a, you know, as a task. But right, right. when we're talking about actually the leadership we need for the moment we are living through, I find it hard to be like, yeah, just stop doing yep. it. Stop caring. Stop pushing towards the future. Yep. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're out. Yeah. And I I mean, so when you think about what's happened over the last 18 months, like we needed leaders like this. We needed people and leaders and organizations to support their employees, to check in with them, to to be the best managers possible. We needed people to step up and work on on DEI and will over the long term. So I'm not sure I would say just stop doing it. On the other hand, if it's clear that there's not going to be any change in recognition or reward for this kind of work, then you have to sort of think about your own bandwidth and your own mental health and your own burnout and exhaustion. And maybe you do have to pull back at certain points or maybe you have to find a different opportunity. I mean, I think that's what companies, the real risk right now for a company, I mean, one is that they look hypocritical. Yes. But two is like, they're very much at risk of losing the leaders who are driving the change efforts companies say they want. And they're actually, you know, the organizations are benefiting from this work because we've also found in the report that when employees say that, you know, their managers do these kind of supportive behaviors and when they feel the company values DEI, they're happier, they're less burned out, and they're less likely to leave. So there are real tangible benefits to this kind of approach to leading and focusing on these activities. So the kind, I mean, companies would really be wise to sort of sit down and think about this and figure out how to change it. Otherwise, they're going to lose the people who are doing the actual work that they need to get done. So have you seen any change in that regard? Are you seeing any any valuing like in this tangible way? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think it, you know, I have seen one new development was, was pretty recently that LinkedIn, Twitter, and also Autodesk are paying the leaders of their employee resource groups like $10,000. Oh, that's year. nice. That's nice. Yeah. Which that's I a defined think, role yes. doing work that is, yes, that's a great start. Yeah, that's a great start, I think. But it would take more um, thinking through the behaviors that you want to encourage and that you're going to measure people on in terms of their performance, which is always a really big task. But I think when companies go through that exercise, they end up in a better place because they're codifying what they want their managers to do. Then they have like, performance metrics in which they can rate people on these things and then reward the people who are actually doing it. Right. I mean, if what if that's a base on your performance evaluation? You know, what is the work you're doing to better the culture of the company? Yes, just, exactly. You know, exactly. For everyone and not just the individuals who are, but that it is part of the entire culture that we are all working towards bettering the exactly. culture. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I mean, I even talked to a few women that I interviewed who 
while they said, you know, this isn't, it wasn't like on the performance review, there was a criteria, you know, to, to focus on DEI or spend X amount of time or do whatever, they put it in their performance goals. So they put it in under their leadership development as kind of an, so, which is sort of an individual strategy to at least have somewhere in this whole assessment process, like a place where that can be validated. So I think yeah. that can be an individual strategy for people who are, you know, who are listening to this and like, yeah, I, I totally do that. I'm not getting recognized. So you can, and even on like your self-assessments for organizations that have that, for, you know, performance <laughs> review season, Just like mark it down. Yeah, mark it down. I definitely would keep track of it. I mean, this holds for all kinds of things. I mean, women's labor is often overlooked and ignored. So yeah, I think it's a good strategy individually. But again, I don't, I personally would put more of the onus on this for organizations and companies to sort out because it's really, it's really should be more on that. So asking for a friend, can I go back to a certain company and demand compensation for my work on a certain flexible work committee? No, <laughs> no, it's like another form of wage theft. Yeah. Can I go back on that, please? Yeah. 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 Well, and you get like, you know, fatigued, right, from doing it. And I think it's like, I know that there's a lot of people who've spent many years of their life deeply engaged on these issues and they reach a point where they're like, I just can't do it anymore. And then they pull back. Yeah. And that, that makes a lot of sense to me too. It's, it's sort of a loss for all of us and for social progress, but you can't, you know, at a certain point, it's just, it's too much. Yeah. I, well, and it would, it would seem, um, I felt that way it, reporting on certain topics, like I could do, I did the education beat for four years and then it, it burned me out mm -hmm. because I was in a state with a tax cap that was ruled unconstitutional in the mid eighties and is still, the state has yet to react to it. You know, you yeah, can only yeah. have so much energy on this though. Yeah. I'm sure there's someone who's been covering education in, in Ohio for, you know, 40 years and is totally still into it, but it yeah. can burn, this stuff burns you out when it's yeah. just constantly, it doesn't change. And it would seem to me that with, especially with these large corporations that you got to know that burnout's coming mm -hmm. if this is how you do it. So how are you bringing up the next generation to kind of pass the baton to like that? Yeah. That'd be part of the cultural pass of like, hey, we know that this is like a two year gig tops that you would run the ERG or the like. Yeah. Yeah. Which, by the way, they need to actually fund their ERGs. Too many yeah. of them are have no budgets, too. So, yeah, I mean, you can just again, this is like. Don't tell me your values, show me your budget. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's yeah. that's always a good place to start. And then you go from there. And then you, you know, again, looking at the criteria and the performance review, and you back in, you back into what actually the company's values are. Yeah. Maybe they profess different ones. And um, you know, and not to like, like this is sort of hard stuff in terms of people are already so busy with their day jobs that this kind of stuff, which is really deeply analytical, deeply important to think through, often gets shoved to the side when really it should be at the center of the company's right. efforts to build itself, to better itself. But there's a lot of things that get in the way of that. And a lot of companies too are just, in the last 18 months have been really challenging. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that, like, I think we've reached a point where this that companies are going to get for saying they're committed to X, Y, and Z and not following through is no longer there. I think right. too many employees are kind of on the lookout to see if their organizations are really going to walk the walk and talk the talk, or is this just all lip service? 
Yes. So that's kind of a force of, of accountability. And so my sense is that there's going to be organizations who are really going to try to turn their words into realities on the ground and inside their organizations. But it, obviously, it takes time to do that and resources. Right. And, you know, it's just we women, we just we see injustice. We can't not act on it. <laughs> like I just I know it's not all women everywhere, but it just seems <laughs> I, I am surrounded by women who just cannot you know, roll up their sleeves and get involved. So please compensate mm-hmm. these women for this work that they do. Yeah. I mean, in, you know, the research on this, there's actually been a fair amount of research on this, these kind of topics in general within academia among faculty. Mm. And, you know, it's similar. There's some differences between, you know, universities and companies, but I think the broader findings hold true. And, and what that, those sorts of studies have talked about is sort of a, what we might call a cultural tax or identity tax. Mm-hmm. which is the extra work that's expected of you by virtue of your ident- your gendered identity or your, your race, race and ethnicity. You know, there's just a set of gendered and racialized expectations about the work you're supposed to do if you're a woman. And if you're a person of color, you should, you know, you should be more interested in diversity committees and you should be right. supporting students. And so there's kind of this set of expectations on women and people of color to do these things and also a concern that you'll be penalized if you don't do it. Right. So I think there's oh, a lot no. of different. <laughs> yeah. I mean, women, you know, if you're damned, asked, if you do damned, if you don't, is that next, the next survey? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I feel like so many of these issues come down to this. You know, if you draw clear boundaries on this stuff, people might not like you. And when, for example, I mean, lots of research confirms when women don't conform to expectations about how women yes. behave, they get a lot of pushback. You know, in, in academia, what's hard is, there's different buckets of work, but the one that's really most valued is research and publication. And the more time you spend on service work, on advise, advising students, the less time there is to focus on research and publication. So if, because of our racialized and gendered expectations, if women and people of color are expected to do this kind of service work more, whereas uh, white men faculty are kind of expected to do research and publication, then you're, that's going to be what feeds into tenure. And tenure decisions. So, yeah. you know, it's sort of a, it's definitely something that we need to untie and figure out. And I think where, what's frustrating about it is your point is like, I mean, to actively not do something that you care about, to yeah. be a part of a, to kind of go along with the system and play by the rules of this, you know, this kind of unequal system, it's hard to swallow that too. Yes. But you sometimes have to because the system is bigger than you. And sometimes it's better to just get tenure and then try to do some other stuff than just and do all the other stuff and not get tenure. You know, it starts with being aware that you're not alone in this stuff landing on your plate and not getting anything for it. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're definitely not alone. We would call that a, a big social pattern there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, gender and race are characteristics that shape what is deemed valuable work. And, you know, when you can have that sort of lens on things that are happening in real time in your own life and in your team's life, that can kind of illuminate what's happening in a deeper way. You know, it doesn't take away the rage related to the injustice, but, you know, uh, being able to name what's happening and understand why it's happening, I do feel like there's yeah. It, it helps. It validates. It can be empowering. But the yeah, the rage part is hard. <laughs> speaking 
from someone well, who uh, studies this. <laughs> Dr. Cooper, thank you so much for your time on The Breadwinners today. And geez, now I feel I have to compensate somehow. <laughs> <laughs> Because I value it so much. (laughs) It was so good to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you again. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining us on The Breadwinners. I encourage you to email us anytime at thebreadwinnerspod at gmail.com or visit us at thebreadwinnerspodcast.com. Please remember to subscribe and to rate and review us. It really helps us grow. And until next week, keep hustling. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM, women's voices amplified.